The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Natural Law and Canon Law Calcedon Position Paper Number 55 Words change their meanings with time, and it is a mistake to assume that an older or, quote, original, unquote, meaning still governs the word. Thus the word, quote, silly, unquote, once meant good or blessed. Quote, form, unquote, meant attacks and a, quote, former, unquote, was a tax collector. Quote, vote, unquote, could mean either a plea or a prayer, or a determination or an expression of will, which is closer to its present meaning. These and other words have changed in meaning, and it is important in using writings of the past to understand each change of meaning in the term. One such very changed term is, quote, natural law, unquote. It comes from the ancient Greeks who meant something very different by it than many recognize. First of all, for the Greek thinkers, nature was not fallen. Second, the material world was divided into two substances, matter and ideas. The ideas or patterns were universals which God reasoning could discover so that the philosophers in their reasoning assumed that their rational conclusions were correct, represented natural law. Aristotle and Plato thus assumed that their political reasoning grasped the universals of life and thus represented true order and natural law. The distinction was between, quote, man-made law, unquote, what unreasoning men legislated, 
and, quote, natural law, unquote, what the philosopher saw as the logos, or reason of being. Natural law thus claimed to set forth the true order in nature. We can say that Marx, in describing the inevitable historical process and its conclusion, echoed natural law in this sense. The medieval era had a different concept at first, although never entirely free from the Greek inheritance. Gratian, c. 1148, wrote, Mankind is ruled in two ways, namely, by natural law and by customs. The law of nature is that contained in the law and the Gospels. Decretum, PT 1, Distinction 1. In subsequent passages, the Greek influence is apparent, but for most men of his day, biblical law was seen as natural law, the law of the Creator by which all things are governed. In Aquinas, the Greek revival was strong. Natural law was seen as something pertaining to right reason. God and man share a common being, and, quote, all beings other than God are not their own being, but are beings by participation, unquote. Summa Theologica 1, Q44, A1. This represented a shift from creation to participation, a Greek concept. It meant that, quote, the intellectual principle which we call the human soul is incorruptible, unquote. Q75, A6. The rational creature, therefore, quote, shares in the eternal reason, and such participation of the rational creature in the eternal law is called natural law, unquote. Q91A2. Nicholas of Cusa, C. 1400 to 1464, also held to this. Quote, Since natural law is naturally in the reason, every law is known to man in its root. Unquote. Such thinking bypassed the doctrine of creation, and it made void the doctrine of the fall. Evil became metaphysical instead of moral and was equated with non-being. All being was good, because all being by participation was continuous with God's being. The revival of Aristotle made the Enlightenment inevitable, because the Enlightenment simply took over these concepts of right reason and natural law and carried them to their logical conclusion. Christianity and the Church were very quickly seen to be excess baggage. If right reason is expressive of natural law, then the rational state, in example, that order established by philosopher Kings, is the true state and expressive of natural law. The theory of the divine right of Kings held to the royal manifestation of natural power and law. The two great enemies of the divine right of Kings were the Jesuits and the Calvinists. The Jesuits upheld the power of the papacy to govern all things spiritual and to declare God's will for rulers. The Calvinists insisted on the sovereignty of God over church and state. The divine right of kings was a curious doctrine. It held to the claim that the king's power came directly from God to the king. Some exponents of this theory attached the divine right to the office rather than the person. But this limitation was rejected by men like James I of England, 
the right was natural and hereditary as well as divine. Like the private succession of land under feudal law, divine right was a natural hereditary possession belonging to a royal line and its rightful heirs. Hence, care was given to establish the legitimate order of succession. The power of divine right, quote, included nothing less than the complete disposal of his subjects, persons, and property, unquote. Charles Howard McElwain, editor, The Political Works of James I, P33F, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard University Press, 1918. Kings were thus little gods, according to James I. No supernatural law could take priority over or be cited against this natural succession. As a result, there was an increasing de-emphasis of biblical law and supernaturalism in favor of natural law and right reason. One consequence, very early, was deism. Another, later on, was Romanticism. Nature became the new source of law, learning, and revelation. William Wordsworth, in, quote, The Tables Turned, unquote, said, quote, One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of a man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can, unquote. Plato and Aristotle held that persons or things were only rightly employed when used according to their nature. The Stoic morality summed up the matter in the precept, quote, follow nature, unquote. Jeremy Bentham, in Principles of Morals and Legislation, 1789, saw all standards of right and wrong determined by pleasure and pain. Darwin added to this triumph of natural law, the thesis of a struggle for survival, and Herbert Spencer identified the right with what is conducive to survival. The moral content, a biblical content, of natural law in Gratian had been reduced to zero. Quote, if it feels good, do it, unquote. By making nature normative, natural law advocates had made sin normative, and the pro-abortion homosexual, quote, rights, unquote, movements and like causes are the logical outcomes of this fact. At a recent meeting of Christian leaders, a natural law advocate was challenged to define or name an agreed-upon content of natural law. The theologian making the challenge called attention to the fact that the concept is contentless, unless borrowings are made from Scripture. Two political leaders asked, quote, what does natural law have to say about adultery and fornication? Unquote. The answer, quote, that question is irrelevant. Unquote. Natural law thinking, where pursued consistently, ends up in antinomianism and Arminianism. Gratian's meaning, which he did not consistently maintain, is best maintained by seeing God's law as over nature, not inherent in it. When Paul speaks of the inescapable knowledge of God in Romans 1.20, he does not say that this knowledge is seen in creation, but, quote, from the creation of the world, unquote. This is a clearly different meaning. The fact that many natural law advocates, Catholic and Protestant, 
have been fine men does not alter the fact that the concept has been a confused one. It has readily lent itself to misuse because it begins with a false premise. The venerable antiquity of a concept does not give it truth. After all, the premise of sin, Genesis 3, 5, every man as his own God and lawmaker goes back to the Garden of Eden. Whatever usefulness the doctrine may have had has long since been lost even more. Why cling to so nebulous a concept of natural law when we have the clear and written law of God, the Bible? It seems that the abiding value of natural law is to give men a chance to puff themselves up as the discoverers of law. At this point, it is necessary to contrast natural law and canon law. Ask almost anyone what canon law is, and most will tell you it is ecclesiastical or church law, a mistake made even by the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1910 because they defined it not historically, but in terms of today. The word, quote, canon, unquote, means a rule, a straight line or measure. Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, kanonos, and 16, kanana, as well as Galatians 6, 16, kanana. The early church used the term extensively. Irenaeus called the baptismal creed, quote, the canon of truth, unquote. Others spoke of, quote, the canon of faith, unquote. As the early councils faced problems, they set forth canons or truths and laws in terms of scripture. True canon law is biblical law. Canon law most certainly applied and applies to the church, but we miss a critical fact of history if we fail to see that Christians have always held that canon law applies also to nations. Two current examples of this application to nations are God's laws, or the rule or canons concerning abortion and homosexuality. During most of the church's history, the church has seen God's rule or canon as applicable to all men, institutions, and states. In fact, the justice pagans recognized in old Rome in the canon law led them to go to church courts with their cases. So much of the litigation by 300 AD was in the hands of the church courts that Constantine, on gaining power, gave all bishops the status of Roman magistrates in order to give official status to the governing courts. To this day, bishops wear the garb and carry the insignia of Roman magistrates. For some centuries after the fall of Rome, canon or biblical law was the only law of Europe. Biblical law was the essential law of American colonies and the early republic. Recently, several nominal Catholics denied the relevance of God's law to the state, insisting on consensus and private choice. These persons, Governor Mario Cuomo, Senator Edward Kennedy, and the Representative Geraldine Ferraro, all bucking for the status of heretic, first class, were reminded by columnist John Lofton, Calvinist, first class, quote, Canon 21 of the Council of Trent's Sixth Session Decree says this, If anyone says that Jesus Christ was given by God 
to men as a redeemer in whom to trust, and not also as a legislator whom to obey, let him be anathema. Unquote. Washington Times, Friday, September the twenty first, nineteen eighty four, page three a. Canon or biblical law was restricted to the church by the rise of natural law. The natural law advocates, in turning to the old Greco-Roman concept, did not realize what they were doing. Ostensibly, they found classical support for biblical faith. In reality, they undermined it. The natural sphere could now claim to be a source of law. The church was seen as the voice of the supernatural kingdom and realm, and the state as the voice and head of the natural sphere and realm. This freed the monarchs from the constraints of canon law. Each could now claim to be his own law sphere. The church was to limit itself to the, quote, spiritual, unquote, sphere, and the state was to rule the, quote, natural, unquote, sphere. This meant that the church was to keep out of that law sphere which belonged to the state, and its canons might be valid for the believer's private life, but not in civil life. Of late, Governor Cuomo of New York and vice-presidential candidate Geraldine Ferraro have echoed this argument. The results have been deadly. The state, with its independent law sphere, now recognizes no canon or rule other than its will. Both in Protestant and Catholic countries, there is a wide gap between the canon professed, quote, within the church, unquote, and the canon professed by the same persons, Quote, within the state, unquote. where there is no universal canon, there is hypocrisy and social decay. A significant legal term is quote, the rule of law. Unquote. An example, the canon of law. The primary meaning of the rule of law is its supremacy over all things, its application to all classes and groups, and the exclusion of all exemptions from its province. In other words, the rule of law means the Catholicity or universality of law. The significant part of the rule of law concept is that it has reference to the state's law, not God's. The law of the state has become the new canon law because the state claims sovereignty or lordship. It is the natural order in its full power, and it recognizes no other canon or rule least of all now from and by God. A good many years ago, when I was somewhat younger, I listened in silence to an informal discussion on natural law by Christian and non-Christian advocates of it. They had dismissed their differences in response to a woman's statement that natural law did not seem to affirm any clear-cut content by saying that this was true of the Bible, too, because interpretations differed. Where, asked the woman, are your Ten Commandments? We may differ in their numbering, but the words are the same for all Christians. They had no real answer. Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. At that, he got more than those who abandoned God's canon for that of fallen nature. October 1984 The Way Chalcedon Position Paper, number 56. If we begin our thinking with a false premise, we will work our way to a false conclusion, or, at best, a faulty one. 
A persistent problem which has plagued the church has been the influence of Greek philosophy. So many of the Greco-Roman converts were men of learning and ability that their entrance into the church meant also the entrance of alien presuppositions. An important example of this was Origen, 185.6-253. Origen was apparently a most appealing figure as well as a scholar of note but he brought into the church some strange opinions. With respect to Scripture, Origen held to the belief that Scripture's plain sense could not be accepted. No man of intelligence, he said, could believe, with respect to Genesis 1, that the first, second, and third days of creation were literal and normal days without the sun, moon, or stars. Also, he held it was, quote, silly, unquote, to believe in terms of Genesis 2, that God, like a former, quote, planted a paradise eastward in Eden, unquote. The Bible gave us, Origen believed, quote, figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history and not through actual events, unquote. On First Principles, chapter 3. For such men, the, quote, truth, unquote, of the Bible was not in its material content, but in the ideas or principles set forth in the, quote, history, unquote, and behind the, quote, history, unquote. For Greek philosophy, there were two kinds of being, matter, and ideas. The wise men worked through the material husk to grasp the ideas or principles, the universals. In the Eastern Church, this approach was very strong. St. Gregory of Nyssa C331 through C396, the younger brother of Basile the Great, wrote the life of Moses in terms of this. The law of God through Moses was ignored as too materialistic. Now Gregory's premise was, quote, the law does not instruct us how to eat, unquote, because, quote, nature is a sufficient lawgiver with regard to these things, unquote. As a result, even the Passover was seen in terms of a hidden meaning. Gregory was a leader in the kind of interpretation still popular in some evangelical circles. The law was ignored, but hidden meanings were seen in the tabernacle colors and the colors of the priest vestments. Gregory always sought, quote, the hidden meaning, unquote, of the Bible's history, the spiritual truth behind the material dross. Like a good Greek, his trust was in, quote, guiding reason, unquote. Even the Egyptian army in pursuit of Israel was reduced to, quote, the various passions of the soul by which man is enslaved, unquote. Gregory's life of Moses tells us little about Moses or God's word. It tells us much about a Greek view of the spiritual life. The Bible became an arcane book which philosophers alone could interpret. It was a book which revealed hidden meanings which only the elite minds could penetrate. Western Latin Christianity was less infected by such thinking and grew rapidly and vigorously. However, the revival of Greek thought affected the West in time. From 1100 to 1517, according to scholars, we see the emergence of lay spirituality in the West. Ideas previously limited to some monastic groups now became popular 
and doctrine gave way to, quote, spiritual religion, unquote. The new piety, according to Carolyn Walker Bynum, in Jesus as Mother, Studies in the Spirituality of the High Middle Ages, University of California Press, 1982, now located the fundamental religious drama and battle not on the cross, but within man's self. Religious faith became experiential and revivalistic. Christ's propitiation was replaced by the individual's experiential approach to God. By the 13th century, some women were preaching, hearing confessions from nuns under them, and bestowing blessings, and some nuns claimed priestly powers. Experience gave authority. It was held in example religious experiences. Gertrude of Helfte spoke to fellow nuns in the late 13th century of God as, quote, she, unquote, saying that God is a mother. The spirituality of the day became feminized, and Bonham says it was held that, quote, in the Eucharist, God gives to the soul power over himself, unquote. In Gertrude's writings, Bonham noted that there is, quote, no reference to a cosmic war between good and evil, little attention to the devil, and little sense of an ontological rift in the universe created by the fall and knit up in some way by the resurrection, unquote. The medieval church was destroyed in part by spiritual religion, by a shift from Christ and his finished work to man and his spiritual experiences. The Bible had become a book for scholars and pietists in which levels of hidden meaning were found. The Reformation stressed the Bible in its historical and doctrinal meaning, and the results were explosive. However, all too soon, the Greek influence was revived. In England, the Puritan power was quickly undermined by the Cambridge Platonists and their spiritual religion. The Anglican William Gurnall, in the Christian in Complete Armor, saw life as a perpetual inner struggle and inner quest for experience. Gurnall lived and died in a critical period of history without ever making a stand for anything. He was irrelevant to his times and thus to the faith. What passes for Protestantism today very often has closer ties to Gregory of Nyssa than to the Reformers. Of late, many fine persons speak eloquently of restoring, quote, the principled approach, unquote, to education, the Bible, and politics. They are echoing Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. Principles are abstractions. They are ideas we see as, quote, basic, unquote, to something in which we formulate as though the goal of thinking is an abstraction. However well-intentioned, this method is anti-Christian. The focus of Scripture is on Jesus Christ. He is not an abstraction nor a principle, but God incarnate. Our focus cannot be principles or ideas, abstractions, but incarnation. Our calling is to incarnate God's law word in all our being, our education, politics, family life, economics, arts and sciences, and all things else. Quote, the principled approach, unquote, is a retreat, not an advance. It overlooks the incarnation instead of building on it. It returns to a Greek universalism instead of seeing the unity of the universal 
and the particular in Jesus Christ and the triune God. History requires the incarnation because history is God's handiwork. History moved to Christ's incarnation now moves to our incarnating his law word in our lives and in all the world and to his coming again. Because God's history requires the incarnation and its mandate for us, when Christians turn aside from their task, others assume it. And for Christians, with the wealth of God's law word and the power of the Holy Spirit to go after the purely spiritual Greek flesh pots is insanity. The result has been antinomianism and irrelevance on the part of the Greeks in our pulpits. Others have assumed the task of incarnational work. In 1935, David Friedrich Strauss published in Germany his work, The Life of Jesus. Its effect was revolutionary in more ways than one. Strauss divided the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. The Jesus of history was a Palestinian peasant of whom we know little or nothing, except that he made such an impression on his time and place that all kinds of sayings, miracles, and events were attached to him, and he was called divine, although the real Jesus was none of these things. Thus far, Strauss had no statement of great importance. What was important was that Strauss gave expression to a Hegelian philosophy which he related to the idea of Christ. As Marilyn Chapin Massey in Christ Unmasked, The Meaning of the Life of Jesus in German Politics, 1983, points out, European intellectuals for over a century had been affirming that humanity should replace Christ as the true divinity. Strauss saw the Jesus of history as a primitive forerunner of this idea of the true Christ, the human species, so that, quote, humanity is the union of the two natures, God become man, unquote. This, quote, God, unquote, was Hegel's spirit in nature, working blindly to find expression in an evolving culture. For Strauss, the biblical history was not true, nor was it important. It is the ideas or principles behind that history which are true. Taking literally, Bible history is offensive because it is supernatural. If things happen in the biblical manner, which Strauss did not believe, they could not be divine, because the truly divine is the truly natural, working in the evolving natural process. For Strauss, in differing editions of his book, there were two possible incarnations of this evolving God. First, he could become identical with humanity, with people as a whole, so that true democracy would express the voice of God. Second, this natural God could incarnate himself in an elite group of philosopher kings who rule over lesser men. Both these forms of incarnationism are very much with us today. Unhappily, some churchmen have nothing to offer a world in the grips of a savage war of evil against God, but homilies on the colors of the tabernacle furnishings. Origin is alive and well in all too many pulpits. Origin is well known as a man who castrated himself to avoid lust. It did not work. Antinomians have cut themselves off from the power of God and think they have gained thereby. 
Origen said, quote, Who will dare to say that the word of God is of no use and contributes in no way to salvation, but does no more than tell of events that happened in the past and have no relation to us? Unquote. Here was the key. Everything had to have a, quote, relation to us, unquote, an example to our spiritual experience. Now, the many chapters on the construction of the tabernacle, Exodus 24 through 40, deal with the past, but not our present situation or experience. For the sons of origin, these chapters on the tabernacle must be spiritualized, and books have been written and many sermons preached on their esoteric meaning. But what does the Bible tell us in Exodus 25 through 40? It tells us that the living God, the God with whom we have to do, is so precise in His requirements that He permits no creative or innovative designing in His house. This should scare these adult-plated, quote, spiritual, unquote, leaders. The God who is so exacting and precise about His house will never permit innovative ethics, symbolic theology, or creative churchmanship. This is no God to trifle with by using our imagination to come up with new meanings. David saw that he could not fight God's battle in Saul's armor, nor can we. Gregory of Nyssa, in his account of Joshua and the spies, cites the bunch of grapes brought back by the spies and suspended on wood as typical of Christ on the cross, and his blood as the, quote, saving drink of those who believe, unquote. Gregory excelled in this kind of imaginative symbolism, and he brought no small intellectual power to the task. But while Gregory wrote, Rome was dying. Unlike Salvian, he was little aware of that fact. He wrote the life of Moses in the early 390s, when Rome had not long to live. Not surprisingly, he wrote for monks who had withdrawn from the world. He believed in Aristotle's doctrine of virtue as the mean, not Scripture's view of virtue as faithful obedience to the law word of God. His greatest debt was to Plato, with whom he sought truth and abstractions. But Jesus Christ declares, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, unquote. John 14.6 Jesus Christ is a person, not an abstraction, a principle, or an idea, and he declares that truth is a person, himself. We cannot seek after abstractions and be faithful to Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. November 1984 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Calvary's tree where he died for you
Tell the 